You know, one of the, probably one of the most underreported tragedies of the current economic situation in this country, the dramatic increase in personal bankruptcies, it's really been, uh, it's really been quite uh, stunning. 20 years, over a 20-year period of time, bankruptcies in this country were on a, were on a rise. Then in the year 2005, the Congress passed a Bankruptcy Reform Act, which made it far more difficult for people to file personal bankruptcy, and, and bankruptcy filings dropped by two-thirds after the passage of that law in 2005. But in the last few years, because of the current economic circumstances, bankruptcies have begun to rise again rather dramatically. In fact, there's been a hundredfold increase in personal bankruptcy filings since 2008. Last uh, year, full year that statistics are available, the year 2010, there were 1.6 million personal bankruptcy filings. I don't have the figures for 2011, but... I could imagine that the number is probably even greater for this current year. Why, why do people file personal bankruptcy? What, what causes that to happen? I mean, the basic answer to that question is that, that people experience some kind of personal tragedy in their lives. Maybe the loss of a job. It It could be a a serious health setback. Frequently, it involves a divorce. But what happens is when this tragedy occurs, the very thin veneer of financial security that that most Americans have is, is ruptured. And they find that they have no alternative but to file for bankruptcy. The statistics say that the typical personal bankruptcy filings, the, the people who find themselves in that very unenviable position, that they have a very large percentage of, of short-term unsecured debt. In fact, again, on average, it's about one and a half times their annual income. And under that kind of financial pressure, when they, they receive this shock from outside the system, as it were, job loss or whatever. They just don't have any resources. They don't have enough resources to fall back on and and to meet their obligations, and so bankruptcy becomes really their only alternative. Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5. This morning, Jesus is going to address with us the issue of bankruptcy. But not bankruptcy of our finances. Not financial bankruptcy, but a bankruptcy of our spiritual resources. He's going to speak about spiritual bankruptcy. We are beginning this morning here, and I am really excited to begin with you, formally the Sermon on the Mount. We overviewed it last week, but... This morning we will begin in earnest. And in this particular section, as the sermon opens up in Matthew chapter 5 and beginning in verse 3 and really running all the way through verse 12, 
we have what is commonly called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. And here, in these verses, three and following, Jesus gives us an eight-part description of a disciple. There's an eight-part description of a disciple here, and in each part of that description, there's a, a reward that's attached to it. It's the same reward repeated over and over again, and it's possession of Messiah's kingdom. Each one of these portions of the description, these facets of the description of a disciple here, builds upon the one that precedes. So he's sort of erecting this description almost like Lego blocks. And all of the concepts here are rooted in the Old Testament. He is drawing out implications of the Old Testament as it relates to what it means to be a follower of Christ. We're going to look this morning just at verse 3, just the first of this eight-part description. And as we look at that, what I want to do is is kind of take a three-pronged approach. And I will do that each time with each part of the description. We will take the same three-pronged approach to each part of the description, and we'll do that so that we might truly understand what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus is laying out here, what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be a follower of mine? The three-pronged approach, I'm summarizing it here with with just three words. They're very simple words. Hopefully they're memorable, and I guess after we have reviewed them eight times in a row over eight weeks, uh, they'll become memorable. But this uh, three-pronged approach, each prong with a a simple word just to kind of hang your thoughts on. The first word or the first prong is designate, designate. Jesus will designate a characteristic, designate. The second word, the second prong, will be evaluate. So it's designate and then evaluate. And what I mean by that is, is we will take the time to, to sort of do some self-evaluation. Where do I stand in relation to this characteristic of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ? So designate, evaluate, and then the third word is cultivate. Cultivate. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that if, if we are a true follower of Jesus Christ, this will be true of us in, at least at some level. But as we are evaluating ourselves in, in light of this, we'll undoubtedly find some shortcomings, some places where we don't really measure up. And so what we want to do there is, is to just talk about how to cultivate this for further growth in our own lives. So designate, evaluate, cultivate. That's the three-pronged approach, and we'll repeat it over and over again as the weeks transpire, okay? Designate, evaluate, and cultivate. So let's take a look here in verse 3, Matthew chapter 5, first under the word designate. Designate. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the first of 
what is commonly known as the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. That word, Beatitudes, it, it has a Latin origin. It comes from a Latin word that means blessed. So Beatitudes just means those who are blessed. The actual Greek word behind this is a, is a significant enough word to, to be blessed here. And, and what it means is to, to be the recipient of divine approval. To be blessed is to be the recipient of divine approval. To be favored by God. To be favored by God. And therefore, at least in some sense, it's, it's to be happy. And some... English translations, and they, they render that word happy. The problem is that happy in our culture is sort of a weak word. And it doesn't really get at the, the depth of the meaning that's being communicated when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The focus is not upon subjective feelings, and maybe that's where the word happy doesn't work quite so well. When we talk about happy, we're, we're usually talking about our subjective state of, of being. How do we feel about things? How are you doing today? I'm happy today. And that's sort of circumstantially based, isn't it? And it's, it's deeper than that. It's more profound than that. It's not based upon our subjective feelings, but it's, it's based upon the objective reality of our standing before God. That's what it means to be blessed. We are happy because of where we stand before our Creator. We are the recipient of His divine approval. We have been favored by Him. The opposite of of being blessed is not be unhappy. The opposite of being blessed is to be cursed, actually. And that probably brings out the strength of, of the word here. Now, you notice here in verse 3, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for or because theirs is the kingdom of God. They are, they are blessed, they are happy, because they have been assured a place in the kingdom of God. God's favor rests upon them. And that favor manifests itself in the reality that they have a place in the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom is, that Jesus is speaking of here, his kingdom, it's, it's not a reward for their poverty. He's not saying, because you are poor in spirit, therefore you have a place in the kingdom of God. But it's really a consequence of the fact that they're poor. It's not a reward, but a, but a consequence of this state of being. Blessed are the poor in spirit, he says in verse 3, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And and that expression actually is kind of an exclusive expression. You could could say theirs and theirs only is is the kingdom of God. Those who are poor in spirit and only those who are poor in spirit have a place in the kingdom of God. Those that are not have no membership in Messiah's kingdom. Now, these Beatitudes, beginning here in verse 3, they are not requirements for certain works that merit God's approval. 
It's not about what do I have to do in order to be okay with God, in order to, to be approved of by God. Oh, I get it. I, I need to be poor in spirit. If I am poor in spirit, then God will look on me with favor. That's not what he's saying. It's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that, that bankruptcy of spirit, poverty of spirit, is a, is a character trait that exists in principle within those who are the children of God. Those who have possession of the kingdom, at least in some sense. It is theirs in principle. But it does need to be cultivated in practice, and we call that the discipleship process. And I think that's important for us to, to try to get our, our minds around. This is not, do this and you will receive that. What it is saying is, this is who you are. This is your, your inheritance in the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus is giving a statement of reality here as he begins his sermon. This is not an ethical command to be obeyed. He is not saying, be poor in spirit. He is saying, blessed are, indicative verb, blessed are those who are pure in spirit, or poor in spirit, rather. In fact, here in this part of the sermon, Jesus gives no indication of how it happens that somebody becomes blessed, becomes poor in spirit. There's no command here at all. It's merely a statement of a reality. He focuses on a description of of what a blessed person is like. A blessed person is poor in spirit. He focuses on on the benefits that are theirs, that is, entrance into Messiah's kingdom. Later in the sermon, the end of chapter 7, he will, he will deal with how do I become this way. And he will talk about the two foundations, right? And how you build your house and all the rest of that. But for now, he is just speaking about those who are the children of God, those who are the followers of Jesus Christ, those who are his disciples. What are they like? The answer is they are poor in spirit. They are poor in spirit. It's also interesting here, just sort of general observations as we're setting this up. It's interesting here in verse 3, and then you can drop down to verse 10. And you notice that it, it speaks of the kingdom, Messiah's kingdom here, as a, a present possession. Do you see it? Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Verse 10, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That forms sort of a bracket here. In between it, the kingdom is spoken of in a future tense. Do you see that? Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be, they will be, future tense, comforted. Verse 5, they will, they shall, future tense, inherit the earth. So there's a statement here of, of both a present reality and a future reality. We kind of combine that sense in the, in the different verb tenses used here. And, and basically what Jesus is communicating is that for, for those who are his followers, the, the Messiah's kingdom, his kingdom, is now their present possession and it will be their possession when it comes. Their right of entrance is guaranteed. 
It can be spoken of as, as if it's already there, even though the kingdom has not yet arrived. In fact, the kingdom is being offered to the nation, right? Repent for the kingdom of God is where? Not here, but at hand. At hand. So they have a right, a present right, but there's the actual possession of that kingdom still awaits its inauguration. So question, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Seems like that's a kind of a key question of this whole verse, isn't it? You better figure that out. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? The word poor, patokos in the Greek, it, it comes from a verb that means to crouch or to cower like a beggar. It means to, to crouch in the corner. It, it means to, to cower, to, to sort of shield oneself like a beggar. In antiquity, in the ancient of days, it was a humiliating thing to, to have to beg. It was a very shameful thing to have to beg. It meant that you had to confess that you, you had nothing. You were entirely dependent upon someone else. And so the, the very act of begging was a very demeaning thing to do. Very demeaning. So the beggars would, would generally, they would, they would crouch down or they would cower. Or they, would, they would sort of avert their face or their eyes and, and, and they just sort of put out their hand for a gift, for a handout. For somebody to take pity on them. Give them an offering. We have a great example in the New Testament. We won't take the time to turn there. You can check it on your own. Over in Luke 16, where it's spoken there of Lazarus and the rich man. This, this, uh, this Greek word is used there several times in that particular text. Luke 16, verses 20 to 22, it's used a couple of times. Lazarus was a beggar. Was a man with Nothing. Nothing. Now, beyond that, this, this term sort of carries with it, at least in, in, the, in the context of the New Testament, it, it carries with it the idea that this poor person is, is generally open and responsive to God. They're open and they are responsive to God. They are, they're aware of their dependence upon Him. And they're aware of their dependence upon Him in a way that, that those who are wealthy typically aren't. I mean, Jesus said, right, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for what? A rich man to enter into the kingdom. Why? Well, because those who are, who are rich in the world's goods generally don't sense the need quite like someone who has nothing. But Jesus here in verse 3, he is not talking about financial poverty. Talking about something else. Talking about spiritual poverty, spiritual beggars. He's talking here about authentic spirituality. What does it mean to be a child of God? God's approval doesn't come to those who, who boast in their spiritual accomplishments. God's approval comes to those who admit their spiritual poverty. Those who, those who crouch down, those who cower, those who sort of avert their eyes and, and hold out a hand 
towards God. It's those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy, the fact that they have no assets, that that their liabilities far outweigh anything they have to offer. They are utterly dependent on God. They are acutely aware they, they have no righteousness, nothing. They must turn to God to supply all of their needs. The prophet Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, he says, The just will live by their faith. They will live by their faith. Now, there is a, a definite Old Testament background to, these, to this idea of spiritual poverty being those who find acceptance with God. For example, Psalm 34 and verse 18 The psalmist writes, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Similar idea. Crushed in spirit. Psalm 51 and verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Not a heart that is lifted up, but a heart that is crushed, that is broken, that is afflicted, that that has nothing. Probably the most significant Old Testament passage that reflects the idea that that those who are poor in spirit are blessed is, in fact, a a passage drawn from the prophet Isaiah. And it's a a passage that Jesus refers to both in Luke's gospel and in Matthew's gospel. It's Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1. Isaiah 61 and verse 1. In fact, it's the passage Jesus reads, according to Luke 4, when he first goes to Nazareth, and he's, he's there in the synagogue, and they hand him the scroll, the Isaiah scroll, and it says he opens it, and he finds the place where it is written, Isaiah 61, these words, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Matthew refers to the same section of Isaiah over in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 5. Let me just flip over there real quick. That's where John the Baptist, right, is, sends his disciples to say, are you the one or, or is there someone else? Jesus answers and said, go and tell John what you hear and what you see and then the blind, the blind receive sight and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and here it is. The poor have the gospel preached to them. Poor have the gospel preached to them. This is Messiah's ministry. It's to come to the bankrupt. Jesus says in another place, it's not those who are well who need a physician, right? But who? It's only those who are ill. Only those who are sick and know they're sick go to a doctor. If we were to use one word to to describe what it means to be poor in spirit, it would be the word humble. If you want to boil this down, blessed are the humble, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the word humble. Again, the prophet Isaiah speaks to this. Isaiah 66 and verse 2, To this one I will look. 
to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. This is the one to whom I will look. And the idea is we'll look with favor. Him who is humble of heart, contrite of spirit, crushed, broken, bankrupt. This is the one to whom I will look. Jesus designates the characteristic of those who are blessed. Now it's time for us to evaluate. Now it's time for us to evaluate. To ask ourselves, am I poor in spirit? Am I poor in spirit? The opposite of humility is arrogance or pride. One of the best ways to evaluate our humility is to look for signs of arrogance, sort of look for the opposite. We see a lot of signs of arrogance. What that means is there's probably a deficiency of humility. So let's do it this way. Let's let's ask this question. What What does spiritual arrogance look like? Let's evaluate. What does spiritual arrogance look like? Well, it begins like this. Arrogance assumes that God must accept me because of my heritage. Spiritual arrogance says God must accept me because of my heritage. That is, I'm an American. I'm an American. And because I'm an American, I'm a Christian. I was born in America. I was brought up in America. I'm a Christian. God, God accepts me because I'm American. Or, God accepts me because my parents were Christians. My parents were Christians. My mother was a, a faithful Christian woman who, who prayed, and, and because of that, God accepts me. Or, people assume God must accept them, that God accepts them because of their religious experience. When I was a teenager, I made a profession of faith. I went forward in a, in a revival meeting. I prayed the sinner's prayer. I, whatever, fill it in. Therefore, God accepts me. I'm, I'm good with God. I'm okay with God. I professed my faith in Him. Once, a long time ago. But I have a card with a date that tells me when I did it. So when we all get to heaven, all I need to do is show the entrance card. Now, I know that's crass and people wouldn't articulate it that way, but they behave as if they think that's true. My friends, it is not a profession of faith. It is a possession of faith. A possession of faith. But others arrogantly assume that God must accept them because of their church attendance. I go to church. I go to church regularly. And you can fill in whatever other religious activities or so forth. And that's the basis under which they assume that they've been accepted by God. 
Or maybe their service. They will point to something they have done for God. But again, look, look at verse 3. Blessed are the humble, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It doesn't talk about what they have done for God, right? It doesn't locate it in what they have done for God. Others assume it's their personal morality. I'm a good person. I am a good person. They will insist. Basically good. And that ought to be good enough. The only problem with that is, of course, when we get to the end of chapter 5, right, what does Jesus say? You are to be mostly good. No, he says you are to be what? Perfect. So, so much for the I'm pretty good. Long way between pretty good and perfect. Long way. But people trust in these kinds of things. The Scripture would say if we're trusting in these things, then we are, we are spiritually arrogant. We are, we are, in a sense, looking to ourselves. Apostle Paul says that a, a true disciple are those that glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. They glory in Christ Jesus. That is, they, they point to what Christ has done on their behalf on the cross. They don't have confidence in their flesh. That is, in their, their heritage or their experience or their personal morality or anything else. They rely on the crosswork of Christ. A second way that spiritual arrogance manifests itself is, is that arrogance looks down on those who are outside of the faith. Spiritual arrogance looks down on those who are outside of the faith. It, it sees unbelievers as enemies rather than to, enemies to be avoided rather than, than beggars who need bread. You probably heard this before, right? A Christian is, is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Over in chapter 9, verse 36, we see the Lord's attitude towards those who are unbelieving. Matthew 9, and verse 36, it says, Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. Because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion upon those who did not, were not the children of God. He didn't see them as enemies, those to be avoided. A third way that arrogance shows itself is, is that arrogance has no patience with other believers. No patience with other believers. Others who are, who are also in process, just like you are, but are at a different place in their spiritual life. The arrogant looks at others and, and sees them and, and, and revels in how much better off they are than them. Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, to be patient with all men. Be patient with all men. Any progress we have, we have made in the Christian life any maturity in Christ that we manage to have achieved is a gift of God to us in the first place, right? 
The whole enterprise begins by grace through faith and is carried forth in the same way. We have nothing to boast in. So looking down on other believers is spiritual arrogance. Fourth, arrogance flaunts its spiritual freedoms to the detriment of other believers. The spiritually arrogant flaunt their freedoms. Romans chapter 14. Go ahead and turn over there. Romans 14. Just be reminded of this again. This is so significant, we have to keep coming back to it. Romans chapter 14, the implications Paul's giving us here of the gospel that he has spent the first 11 chapters spelling out in great detail. Romans chapter 14, verse 15 Paul says, for if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died, verses 21. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. What Paul says is that in Jesus Christ we have Titanic freedoms. Titanic freedoms. But the use of those freedoms needs to to be circumscribed by our love for others in the faith. And in the exercise of those freedoms, if we are, and notice the, the strong terminology here, verse 15, destroying him, tearing him down, verse 20, This, by the way, is not just uh, irking him a little. That doesn't qualify. Okay? Paul is not saying that our freedoms must be restrained if it merely bothers somebody a little bit. He's saying that our freedoms must be restrained if in the exercise of those freedoms we are actually destroying the faith of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Arrogance says, I don't care. I don't care about my brother and sister in Christ. I will exercise my freedom as I choose. It's their problem. And if it destroys their faith, tough. Tough. On the flip side, arrogance binds other believers unto, unto man-made spiritual laws. So there's, there's two sides, two ditches here. One says, I've got my freedom in Christ. I understand I have titanic freedoms in Christ. I'm going to do basically whatever I want to do in these areas, and I know that it will not disrupt my standing before God in Christ Jesus. I am secure. The other person says, oh no, there's a a whole set of do's and don'ts that you have to prescribe to. And they arrogantly make themselves those who produce the list, right? What's the definition of a legalist? A legalist is anybody whose convictions are tighter than yours, right? I mean, that's sort of the working definition. It's not a biblical definition. It's not a true definition. But it's generally how we approach things, right? Anybody whose restrictions are tighter than mine, anybody's convictions are tighter than mine, they must be legalists. No, we're talking about pure legalists here, biblical legalists. Those who Jesus says, like the Pharisees in Matthew 23 and verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. 
They, they produce this body of extra biblical rules and regulations in order to live a life pleasing to God, and then they, they dump it on somebody. Jesus says, by the way, they won't lift a finger to help you with it. All they do is put it on you. That's spiritual arrogance. Sixth, arrogance sees oneself as not entirely dependent upon the grace of God. It sees oneself as not entirely dependent upon the grace of God. And that is evidenced in many ways, but not the least of which is a lack of biblical prayer. Arrogant people, spiritually arrogant people, do not pray. They do not pray. They feel no need to pray. They are not acutely aware of their dependence upon the grace of God. Furthermore, they seldom read their Bibles. They seldom read their Bibles. They don't pray. They don't read the Scriptures. And it evidences a a lack of dependence on God. Jesus said in John 15, verses 4 and 5, that you abide in me and I in you, right? As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. And then what about this? Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. We can say it, but how often... We contradict it, right? How often we contradict it. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Seven. Seventh way, arrogance reveals itself. By the way, how do I know there's so many of these? Yeah, that's right. Just sitting in my study thinking about all the ways my arrogance shows itself. I started scratching them down on a pad of paper. It's frightening. It's frightening. Arrogance is revealed by being unteachable. Arrogance is revealed by being unteachable, by being a know-it-all. Spiritual arrogance is revealed by being a know-it-all. What do I mean by that? Well, how about this? John 9. Turn over to John chapter 9. Do better if I turn to John 9. There we go. Let's look at that passage. I wasn't in John 9. I was thinking, wow, that doesn't say what I want it to say. <laughs> the context of John 9, of course, is the man born blind, right? That Jesus heals. And that creates a confrontation with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were those who were very much spiritually arrogant. So we have this kind of interesting conversation that's going on in John chapter 9, back and forth between the man who was, was born blind and has been healed and the Pharisees. It sort of reaches a, a peak here in verse 24. It says, So for a second time they called the man who had been blind. And they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He's talking about Jesus. They're talking about Jesus. He then answered, 
Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I love this. He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? Verse 28, they reviled him. And they said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, well, here is an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? And they put him out of the synagogue. Wow. That is an unteachable, know-it-all spiritual arrogance, isn't it? Eighth, arrogance is an unwillingness to be accountable to other believers. It is a manifestation of our arrogance when we refuse to be accountable to other believers. When we want to live an independent life, it's just me and Jesus, right? Just me and Jesus. Paul says, Galatians 6 and verse 2, to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of God to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of God. So an unwillingness to be accountable to other believers is a demonstration of arrogance. We will not go on lest we become crushed under the weight of all of this. There's enough to evaluate here, isn't there? All right, let's cultivate then. Let's cultivate. Let's let's cause it to grow. That which is good, let's cause it to grow. You cannot be poor in spirit if you are proud in life. You cannot be poor in spirit if you are proud in life. And so we have to, we have to cultivate humility in every aspect of our lives. How? How do we go about cultivating humility? It's easy to think we're humble when we compare ourselves to other people, right? You know the game. Find the proudest person you can and then, and then measure yourself against them and congratulate yourself on how well you're doing. My friends, if we are using a crooked ruler, we will never be able to get an accurate measurement. We need to compare ourselves. We need to measure ourselves against a holy God. And then we will see how much we have to grow. Came across this quote from Charles Spurgeon here a while ago. I'm going to share it with you. It's a powerful quote. Spurgeon says, and I quote, Brother, if any man thinks ill of you, 
Do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you are. If he charges you falsely on some point, yet be satisfied, for if he knew you better, he might change the accusation, and you would be no gainer by the correction. If you have your moral portrait painted and it is ugly, be satisfied, for it only needs a few blacker touches and it would be still nearer the truth. Wow, huh? Yeah, if you only knew me, right? If you only knew me. Any criticism, any accusation you bring, if you really knew me, it'd be worse. We need to appraise ourselves rightly. It begins there. Cultivation of humility begins with a, with a right appraisal of who we really are how dependent we are on the grace of God. It's always back to that. We are dependent on the grace of God mediated to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, in this cultivation process, we need to meditate on that cross frequently. We need to meditate on the cross of Jesus Christ frequently. Now listen to Paul in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Isn't that an amazing statement? Paul says, I have been crucified. I have been executed with Jesus Christ. It is no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live only by faith in the Son of God. This man has a gospel focus. Gospel focus. I mean, when we think seriously about the, Christ, the, the price that Christ paid, right, on that cross, there is no room for pride. Part of the cultivation process, right, in a garden is to get the weeds out, isn't it? Those little rake things, you know, and you get down there and you kind of scratch around in the soil and, and you dig up the, the weeds that are growing up around the plant. So we need, we need to be uprooting these spiritual weeds. We do that by focusing on the cross of Christ, taking the time to meditate. You know, we don't do that well. We live in such a fast-paced world, Right? Everything is instant. We just need a little time to think without earbuds. Without earbuds. So afraid to be alone with ourselves. Think. As I was meditating on this, the words of the song by Isaac Watts came to my remembrance. Isaac Watts, he wrote these lyrics in 1707. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gains I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride, right? Watts says, when I survey the wondrous cross, that is, when I meditate on the cross of Jesus Christ, when I think seriously about the cross of Christ, 
It crushes my pride. Crushes my pride. It cultivates a poverty of spirit. Third, embrace life's trials faithfully. Appraise yourself rightly. Meditate on the cross frequently. Embrace life's trials faithfully. James says in James 1, beginning in verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why? Well, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect or mature, complete, lacking in nothing. Embrace it. Embrace it. God is is absolutely committed to changing you and I into the image of Jesus Christ, to make us like Christ. And the, the preordained means by which he will do that is trial. We do not grow like Christ when everything's going well in life. We become like Jesus Christ when things are falling apart. Because it is that point that we are forced upon to the grace of God to depend entirely on Him. And He transforms us. Transforms us. Yet I have to confess, when the trials come, the thoughts come to my mind, how do I get out of here, right? How do I get out? Give me a pill. Right? Just give me a pill. I want a pill, that's all. Go to the doctor. I want, I want a pill. Doctors know that, by the way. You know, you walk in the office, they already got a prescription pad in their hands. See, God would have us remain under the trial and let it accomplish what it's supposed to accomplish. And when we, when we short-circuit it, when we circumvent it, when we weasel out from under it, then, then God just... Says, oh, well, okay. Flunk that test. You can take it again on Friday. <laughs> you know, you don't pass until you pass. So it comes again. Comes again. You have to embrace life's trials faithfully. And you know, God gives us designer trials. Did you know that? It's not like one size fits all. You know, he goes to the trial rack and he'll see, you know, what do I got? No, he's like, man, I know exactly where this person needs to be poked. So let's just put together a designer trial and boom, there it is. Because he loves you. He loves you. And he is committed, absolutely committed to making you like his son. fourth way to cultivate humility in our lives is to serve others quietly. Appraise yourself rightly. Meditate on the cross frequently. Embrace life's trials faithfully. And fourth, serve others quietly. Serve other people quietly. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10 and in verse 45, for for even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. Give his life a ransom for many. We're going to be like Jesus Christ, then, then we 
that we're going to be servants. We're going to be servants. One of the best ways I know to, to cultivate humility is to serve other people and to do it quietly. That's the challenge, is to do it quietly. Many of us, we're, we're happy to, to serve, but we want recognition at the end. We want recognition. We want to be honored. We want to be appreciated for what we do. And, and it's, it's good to be honored, and it's, it's good to be appreciated. And we, we should appreciate what others do for us. But when that's what motivates us, we have cheapened the whole thing. We have traded a temporal reward for an eternal kingdom. Serve someone when there is no obvious benefit to you. No obvious benefit to you. When your service will go unnoticed, when it will go underappreciated, that's when you'll start to be cultivating things. Here's a little test for you. Ask yourself right now, who am I presently serving? And then write their name down. Just write down the name. You know, don't, don't let your neighbor see it. Okay, steal your crown. Who am I serving? And put a name down. See, if you can't think of a name, then you know this is an area of my life where, where I'm not cultivating humility. My friends, it is only by the grace of God that we recognize how spiritually bad off we are, right? How bankrupt. And how wonderful it is to be broke. Okay? Somebody will edit that out. It's the best place to be is broke spiritually. To have nothing. To be cowering in the presence of God with, with your hand out. You might pour a little, little mercy drops into your hand. May you be encouraged this morning. Be encouraged by the grace of God in your life. And rejoice in the fact that blessed are the bankrupts. Let's pray. Our Father, it begins with you and it ends with you. It is your grace from beginning to end, and you have poured it out upon us. There is no good thing in us, our Father, nothing to commend us to you. No reason for you to set your affections upon us. We have absolutely nothing. In fact, it's not that we have no assets. We, are, we have sky-high liabilities. And yet you have condescended to reach out to us through Jesus Christ. In your goodness and mercy and love, you piled on him and his cross 
all of our guilt, all of your holy indignation and righteous anger, well-deserved for our sin. And you punished it there on your only beloved Son. And, oh, Lord, even that reality that we have come to know and, and believe is only because of your grace. For the Apostle John says, we love because you first loved us. Sent your Son to be a propitiation for our sin. Oh, Lord God, we are, we are beggars. And God, we wouldn't have it any other way. I pray that you would, you would work in us in these coming weeks as we examine what Jesus has said about being a follower of his. What does it mean to be a disciple? Your spirit would enable us to, to evaluate and to cultivate for your name's sake. Amen.